You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Turn your Bibles to the book of... You're like, I don't know. Well, I just said it. You weren't paying attention. Ruth. I titled the message, Leaving It Behind, because that's exactly what takes place. And so here's what's going on. We've preached through this book before. I felt led to go back to it. I have been meditating on it. I have been reviewing my old notes. I thought I could knock it out today. I think this is going to be a two-week process, so just stay with me. Uh, But we are going to get through a piece of it today. Uh, Who in here, just by show of hands, is familiar with this woman in the Bible named Ruth? Good. All right, that's a good start. I know one person in particular who's in the sanctuary who's actually named Ruth, and she's a high school kid, and we won't call her out, but her name's Ruth Holscher. And so I thought, I thought of the Holsters even this morning today, and as I'm going through this short book, I'm going, man, that's a solid name. Just so you know, anyone in here want to have kids still? All right, you need to make this a finalist because this is a solid name. And is it not true, I'm totally going off my notes here, that when you like a person with a name, that name becomes more what? appealing, and then even if it's a great name, if you think they're kind of not the best, then you what? You hate that name. All right, Ruth is a great name. She's a great godly character in the Bible. And so we're going to do a case study of three women, Ruth, her sister-in-law, and her mother-in-law. Not all three women are so great, but Ruth is beautiful. We know that she's beautiful, and there's kind of the end of the story. Uh, Part of the reason we know she's probably physically beautiful is she captures the eye of someone significant. And although there might be multiple reasons for that, a practical reason is she's probably a very attractive person. But what's so great about Ruth is not just her outward beauty, but her inward faithfulness. Is it not true, especially if you've been married a while, that there's nothing that carries that idea of being attracted to someone like their character? I think that's specifically true of men. Ladies, is that not true of men? And maybe it's because we get a little different. Our bodies change over the years and attraction changes, but I can't think of a more attractive quality than loyalty and character. It carries the marriage and it carries this, uh, this, uh, this idea that, that that's what truly makes the person and that's what makes Ruth a godly woman in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament. And so she has this amazing character. What we're gonna see about her today is she has this deep, abiding faithfulness to God. And she has this loyalty to the people that God puts in her life, even though, even though she does not have an ideal in any way, background or upbringing. And so we're gonna, we're gonna see a little bit of that today and then there's a lot of ground to cover, but I can promise you this, if you have a less than ideal or less than perfect background, I can promise you it's probably not like Ruth's. Because Ruth's background is dark. And so the story starts, and we're going to just kind of walk through it quickly. The story starts with some men. In fact, there's three men. There's Naomi's husband and her two sons, and what marks their life is failure. And so there's a famine in Bethlehem, and then they're in Bethlehem. There's a famine, and so what they do is the husband makes a decision. We're going to go to a stronger economy. We're going to go where there's more food because we're hungry. And so what they do is they go to 
in this land of Moab and to the Moabites. And the problem with the Moabites is they want nothing to do with God. They're, they're enemies, they're antagonists of God. And so they never should have gone there because they're God's people. And it's so bad, they're absolutely godless. It's so bad that these Moabites were known for doing just terrible things. And one of them was the worst of the worst. They were known for child sacrifice. And this is where Ruth is from. She's a Moabite herself. And so he sees the situation this father figure, this Naomi's husband, he makes a decision to go a different course where there's some food. And as he makes a decision to take this course, he makes his decision, I'm gonna go to a land that is so godless where they actually sacrifice children, but in his physical provision, he says, well, at least there's food that I can put on the table if I make this directional shift for my family. And so he saw provision. You can write things down if you write them down. If you're a man in church today, you get a little glimpse of this sermon and then it goes to the women. But while it's about you, write it down, that your provision as a man and spiritual leader of your home isn't just physical, it's spiritual. Right? It's more than just working hard to put food on your table. It's about going around the table and praying for this family that God has given you and nurturing their spiritual well-being. And so these men don't do that. And by the end of verse five, anyone know the story? What happens to all three men? If it, Bible scholars, say it loud. Die. die. And so that's not prophetic. I'm not saying if you make a bad decision, everyone's going to get wiped out, right? That would be definitely an Old Testament concept. But by in, the end of verse 5, they die. And Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth and her sister-in-law, Orpah, has this epiphany that, that many of us have had when we're in a situation that's dark. She says to herself, I remember this time in my life where things were not as bad as they currently are. And so it's been 10 years now, and Naomi has this thought that it's time to go home, and that's where we pick up the story today in this case study of these three women. And so follow me, starting in verse six of chapter one of Ruth. Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she hears this thing that's happened. There was no food, and now there's food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. There is this slap in the face moment where she comes to the Lord, and she realizes that God's people are in one place, and this is kind of what we pray for as pastors, that when people drift away from the faith, because it wasn't just a place she lived, it was a people that she belonged to. And so, and so in essence, right, Bethlehem, it was the church. It was, I used to worship along people that loved God, and now I'm living with people who are murdering children, who are worshiping false gods, and my husband's dead, and my son's dead, and my other son's dead. And how, how many of you guys have had this moment in your life where you're going, you know what? God's showing me in his sovereignty there is a better way to do this, and I've drifted away from the things that he has. They all had this Dr. Phil moment where they realized their system was broken, and they asked themselves this intrinsic question, how's that working for me? Dr. Phil is a philosopher of all philosophers, and I want to just keep bringing him up throughout the message because I know that he means a lot to you and that you look to him in such high regard, right? <laughs> but Dr. Phil, of all the dumb stuff maybe he might say, he asked this question on his talk show, and I'm just 
divulging that I have listened to a little Dr. Phil in my life. He asked this therapeutic question, how's that working for you? And they have this moment right there. And so they're hitting a brick wall. They don't know what to do, but she has this epiphany. It used to not be so bad. And so Naomi has a nickname. And just as a continued Bible quiz, do you remember what it is? She says, my name is Mara. Call me what? She says, call me bitter. And so Naomi has some issues. She's a great woman. God does great things to her, but she has some issues. And so she has this bitter disposition. And she says to her daughter-in-laws, they don't know what to do, but she says to her daughter-in-laws, I'm gonna go back to this place called Bethlehem. I'm gonna go back to Judah, but I want you to stay in Moab. Our time is over. We had a good run. We, you, know, you had my sons, you married them, you were Moabite women. We shouldn't have done any of this, but, but despite that, I've gotten close to you. And she says, but it's probably time now where we part ways. I'm going back home. I heard there's food. You already have a life here. You already grew up here. And so she says to Orpah and Ruth, it's time to part ways. It is time to do what God's called me to do. And then she builds this case. She says, I don't really have any more sons for you. They're already dead. And if you were, this is what she actually says. She says, if you were to find one of my sons, you'd have to wait so long that, now I'm gonna paraphrase, you're gonna be a massive cougar by the time the process is over. That's what she basically outlines for her two daughter-in-laws. And so she says, you have nothing left to do with me, just go home. And so Orpah is the first character in the story. And Orpah responds, no, I can't do that. No, I want to go with you. But then by verse 14, Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye, and she leaves. And so I remember I've said this before. I looked at my old notes like four years ago. Anyone here from Minnesota? No one? You don't want to admit it with everything going on in the world? <laughs> you don't want, you're like, Minnesota, no, I will not claim Minnesota. Uh, Orpah is like a, a Minnesota nice person. She says, no, no, I'll never leave you, right? Anyone know what Minnesota nice is? You have to say no three times before you then say yes. Or you have to say yes three times before you say no. She, that's kind of how Orpah is tracking. She says, no, I'd never leave you. No, I'd never leave you. And then the third time or so, she says, well, I guess, you know, let bygones be bygones. She gives her a kiss, and then she leaves her. And Ruth has a whole different experience. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye. And I'm going to really drive this home in a few minutes. But this is why Ruth is so awesome. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye after about the third request. And Ruth, in a, pose, in a direct opposition to this mentality, clings to her mother-in-law. I mean, of all the people to cling to, to your mother-in-law, she clings to her mother-in-law. And look at how she responds in verse 15 that's so much in contrast to this woman named Orpah in her life who's her sister-in-law. And if you're going to start underlining things in your Bible, if you're new to the faith, underline these things. This is some of the best stuff in the Old Testament. Ruth, by far, is my favorite woman in the Old Testament. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. You guys heard that Chris Tomlin song? Where you go, all right, track with that. I think that's is where it's from. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, yeah, just a little translation issue there, but you get it. Where you lodge, or where you stay, I will stay. And here's what's so awesome about Ruth. Your people shall be my people. You can translate that. Your church, 
will be my church. I used to go to this really messed up church, but I'm gonna be biased. Your new life will become my new life. Your people should become my people, and here's what's so beautiful, and your God, my God. This is the moment, in my mind, this is how I see it, and there's definitely some, some people that wrote things about Ruth that, would, Ruth that would agree. This is her salvation time. This is where the light bulb goes off. This is where she gets it. Your God will be my God. But here's what, in verse 17, makes Ruth so awesome. Are you ready? Where you die, I will die. She takes it up a whole nother level. If I have to die for this thing, then I'm gonna die for it because where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. There are a few big moments in your life, but there's nothing bigger than your salvation. I mean, I think psychologists will tell you you have about seven defining moments in your life. Don't, don't quote me on that. I'm just totally going off the cuff on that. I, I believe that that's a true statistic. This would be number one. If you're a Christian, this is it. Right? There, there are others like who you marry or you know, you know, just certain things that you will do in your life, but there's nothing more important, nothing that is the equivalent of this question of where you go, I will go, and if you will die, then I will die, and your God will be my God. She has this carved out moment in her life. I used to worship this pagan God who sacrificed children. I had an upbringing that you wouldn't believe, but it doesn't matter because you're gonna use me, God. I believe that. And she had this new faith in God, and it's not like Orpah. Right, Orba says, well, I'd like to do that. I think I'll do it. No, you should go back home. Well, I'd like to do that. I think I should do that. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. But when the rubber meets the road, she goes, okay, I'm gonna go back to what's comfortable. Ruth has this defining moment in her life. And now she has this really intense moment with Naomi because remember, it's been 10 years, but anyone from a small town, this is a small town. Right, Bethlehem's a smaller town back a few thousand years ago, even a, a while back in the, in the book of Judges before Christ ever was coming to earth. This was a small area. And it says in verse 19 that the whole town was stirred because of him. So there's this moment 10 years later where all the women still know each other and they know what she did and they know what her husband did and now she comes back into town. She probably would have had her head hanging low. She would have known pretty much everyone who was a player in the community. And then they make this statement about Naomi that's really critical. The women in the town say, man, she looks really different. They ask this question. They say, is this Naomi? I mean, how many of you know they already knew it was Naomi? And that, that's just a way of, of gossiping, right? Is this really Naomi? Wow, she looks different. You can just kind of fill in the gaps there. There is also this reality that when you live a hard life, sometimes that can age you dramatically. But Naomi, this woman who's struggling, hears these comments about herself as she puts her head down and she walks back down to town after 10 years in the Bethlehem, and that's when she makes the famous statement. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. And here's what's funny about that. She's blaming God. She's saying, God is giving me this new name. She's blaming God, and I want you to hear this as we keep going. She's blaming God for something that has nothing to, to do with him. Have you, have you ever done that in your own life? It's like, well, 
this is the way things turned out. But in reality, if you were just to be objective, what, God had nothing to do with the fact that, that her and her husband went to this place that wanted nothing to do with God, that were enemies of God. And now as things unfold that aren't the way that she would want them to, now she's blaming God for decisions that her idiot husband made. And I, I can imagine God in heaven going, are you serious? Call me bitter. I'm going to get blamed for your lack of judgment, for your lack of character, for your lack of standing up for what's right. And so now it concludes with this verse, and I'm going to apply it to women to women mentoring. Are you ready? Verse 22, look at it with me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We're going to end it there. They're in town. She says, call me bitter. Ruth is probably at this point in the storyline going, man, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But despite all of that, Ruth's the all-star of the book. Ruth's the all-star of this Sunday. Ruth is the all-star of women to women mentoring at 2 p.m. She is a person, if you have a daughter in your life, I have a daughter, I want her to be a Ruth. She is the person to be looked at but we're gonna look at each three, and I, I want you to write this down about Orpah. This is their takeaway from this young, this young woman who is a daughter-in-law to Naomi. Your big takeaway from this person is this. Your heart leads your feet. Your heart leads your feet. Or maybe saying it this way is more impactful. Orpah kisses and Ruth clings. Do you see the difference in that? There's this, there's this watershed moment in their life and she says the right things. Track with me, pay attention. She says the right things, but she does basically at the end of the day whatever she wants to do. Orpah kisses, but Ruth clings. I'll, I'll explain it this way. I know it's already easy to understand, but I think uh, analogies are good. And so I, I used kind of the same analogies, but this one to me is powerful because I get this visual that maybe you can grasp in your own family. Uh, one of the most frustrating things about having teenagers is that at a certain point in their life, they make the error of thinking that you don't know infinitely more than them as a parent. Are you tracking with that? Anyone have teenagers? That they're so fun and they always think that you're smart and that you have their best intention in mind. And then they hit puberty and it's like you didn't see it happen, but these horns start manifesting through their, through their skull. Are you, are you awake? All right, you haven't been there yet. Trust me. Trust me. And so, so we're starting to see that happen, although I think our kids are, are good kids. But my wife is the one that's kind of thrown a curveball at me in her parenting. She has never really worried about things and just kind of always trusted that things will be okay. And uh, I have this oldest son who's going through this process of he doesn't want me to tell him every little thing to do with his life. And he has this independent will that's going to keep him from our basement when he's 40, which is good. Uh, but it's funny how to watch that process because I'm angst about it. And I know that it's the right thing because I know that I don't eventually want him in my basement. But there's this transition happening. And so uh, he's a little less... He's a little less touchy-feely than he used to be where he'll hug you. You have a teenager? He'll hug you with a side hug, okay? And so my wife, who gets frustrated with him in that way and who has never really been one to worry about stuff like that, 
she'll say to, to my oldest son, she'll say, Joseph, give me a hug. And he'll, you know, he'll have his friends around and she finds it better to embarrass him publicly with his friends around. And, and so she'll say, give me a hug. And he'll go to give the side hug and she'll do this thing where she'll just grab him and tell him how much she loves him and just embarrass him tremendously. And so what she'll do, my point in saying that is this is what it looks like. She will cling to him until he is mandated to give her the affection that she desires. She'll cling to him until she's satisfied that he's loving her the way he wants, she wants him to love her. And she doesn't care if he's 16 or 22 or 40 or whatever. This is what she demands. And she always makes this profound statement. She says, I birthed you, right? You owe this to me. That's one advantage that I don't have in the argument. But she clings to him. And I want you to get a middle picture. If you, if you know my wife, or many of you don't probably know her, but just get a picture of your own story of the fact that your, your teenager is kind of pushing you away like Orpah, like, yeah, I love you, I love you, I'm okay, I'm gonna just, you know, give you a quick hug or a quick kiss, and then picture this, you know, mama bear moment where you grab them, maybe it's your daughter or it's your son, it doesn't really matter, and you cling to them and you say, I call the shots in this scenario, you're not leaving me, and the reason I bring that up is that's Ruth. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Who you worship, I will worship. That's what women-to-women mentoring looks like. That is the power of a manifested life of godliness. There's this massive divide between Orpah, the Minnesota nice, and the clinger named Ruth. Because the clinger says this, I can't do life without you. And I know that sounds incredibly codependent, but look at it in relationship to God Almighty. The clinger says, I can't do life without you. Orpah doesn't have a heart to join the people of God. And she definitely doesn't have a heart to pay the price that Ruth is going to pay in the next few chapters. And so she kisses and Ruth clings. Here's Ruth. Here's what I want you to take away from Ruth. Ruth knows something when the light bulb goes off in her mind that we all need to grab a hold of, and you can write it down. Salvation is free, and it's kind of a play on words, right? Salvation is free, but, but here's what we know according to Christ. Pick up your cross and follow me. Salvation is free, but it costs you everything. That when Christ does what he does to provide salvation for you, there's this mentality that because Christ died, because Christ rose from the dead, then the expectation for us, according to the gospel, is that we die to ourselves, And so we can't earn this thing called salvation. But at the same time, as we lay our life down, we have to be willing to give Christ everything. He, he looks at us in a lukewarm state where we have a Minnesota nice to our obedience to him. And he says, depart from me. I want nothing to do with you. He demands the entirety of our heart. This is a massive statement to say, where you die, I will die. The Moabites, this is a real reality for Ruth. The Moabites were hated by the Jews. They they were looked at as as so much lesser than. Their their whole whole historical context is that they come from Lot, and they were a byproduct of Lot having sex with his daughter. 
Jews were not fans of Moabites, and Moabites were not fans of Jews. And so when Ruth says this statement, she's not joking around. When Ruth says there's this opportunity to go to this place, I don't know how it's gonna play out. They could easily murder me. She means just that. This could cost me the entirety of my life. And that's our, that's our salvation in Christ, that because he gave us everything first, because he loved us first, because he died for us first, because he gave us new life first, we gladly give him back our lives. And, and Ruth makes this statement as this young godly woman with such little knowledge. She, she didn't have a six-month class on discipleship. I, I don't know what her mother-in-law had been telling her over the years, but there's no real indication that she had everything figured out in her life. What we know is she has a little bit of knowledge, but a massive heart for the Lord. And, and, and so what I wanna take away from this as we start to close, and we're gonna finish with Naomi, is how many of you, including myself, would do what she did? How many of us would say, I will go to this place that I don't know about, to a people who hate me, to go live with my mother-in-law, potentially single for the rest of my life. And if I die, I die because that's how much obedience means to me. That's the story of Ruth. Salvation is free for Ruth. She has this moment with God, but at the same time, because of what God has done for her, because he's already rescued her heart, she gladly surrenders her life. There's this last woman who's known as bitter in the story. And what we take away from her is this one simple concept. That there is this watermark time in all of our lives when we run away from God because she definitely ran away from God. There is this moment in our lives when that's our story and because we're sinners, we all have run from God. He ran first to us. But there's this time in our life where we have to make a cognizant decision. It's time to come home. That's Naomi. I know she messes up. I know she gets bitter. She comes back around. That's the good news. But what we want to take away from this storyline today, specifically for the women in our church, I, I will just tell you my heart, and I, I, I'm sensitive to saying this because it sounds like I'm just kissing up to you, and, and I kind of am, but not really. I've been praying for the women at New Life. I think we have some of the most godly women that you'll ever find in any church. But at the same time, there's a lot of women because they come through my office and Sunday mornings and connection cards. There's a lot of women who, who don't look like Ruth yet, but they look a ton like Naomi. And they're just starting to connect the dots that their way is broken and broken can't fix broken. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And, and their story is not pretty. And so they rebelled from God at a certain point and their marriage didn't work and their kids are rebelling and you know, their job situation hasn't panned out like they thought it would. They're just at this vulnerable place where now they're coming back to the people of God, even though maybe they've been away five, 10, 15, 20 years and they're coming back to the fold and they're having this moment like Naomi where they sit back and reflect and maybe it's even from their childhood or Sunday school, but they have this moment in their life where like, man, I remember some sermons or I remember a context. I remember this church environment and it wasn't perfect and I kind of dismissed it, but I, I remember this place in my heart where there was a better way than the way that I'm living. 
I mean, is that not, if you're a believer and you're watching everything else happen in culture around you, is that not your heart that people would wake up? That they would say, women or men, that they would say in their heart, there used to be a better way, maybe, just maybe, I don't have all of this stuff figured out. But I remember this people of God that they weren't perfect and sometimes they were hypocrites, but I remember they at least had this spiritual food and I need that in my life because I've veered off this path where I'm the ultimate savior of my own universe and I am more miserable than I've ever been. In a culture where Generation Z, 4% have a biblical worldview, you can believe that some of this is gonna happen and we have an opportunity in the midst of the chaos. And so Naomi has this moment, it used to be better. My husband's dead, my sons are dead, my, my legacy of, according to all natural instincts is gone, my social security plan is ruined because all the men in my life are gone in the Old Testament. I have nothing left, but there was this place that I used to go to church with people who loved God even though they weren't perfect, and now I need to go back to them. It's time to come home. If you've been drifting away and making a half-hearted commitment to God, a half-hearted commitment to his people, it is time to come home. And I, I don't want to be too critical here, but I'm just going to say this. God will not honor a different approach. Making it all about you on your terms, when you go, how much you get involved, who you invest in, that's a selfish philosophy and God will not honor that. God is saying to Naomi, God is saying to his church, God is saying to very godly women in our church, it is time to take this thing called discipleship and mentorship seriously. It is time to come home to the people of God and rally around the women of God to see change happen. And if you're a woman at New Life, what's so distinct in the role that God's given you is there's only so much someone like me can do. As a man and a pastor, I've got natural built-in boundaries. I'm not gonna meet with women every week alone in my office. That's not happening. So God's given you this ministry of mentoring women. For the past 10 years, she's been living in hell. And so she makes this journey back to Bethlehem. It would have been 60 or 70 miles in rough terrain. I don't know what she's thinking, and you don't know what she's thinking. Ruth probably doesn't even know what she's thinking because Ruth has no context. She's just following her like a puppy dog. But 60 to 70 mile journey home, she's probably thinking, man, I remember this one lady. She's not gonna be too happy to see me. Or I remember the house that I used to live in. I wonder if it's still gonna be there. It's been 10 years and she goes back home in this tough terrain, but she has this one pervasive thought that's driving her over each hilly terrain that she's walking under. It is time to come home. It is time to come home. It is time to come home. She has some emotional baggage to unpack, but she knows it's time to come home. The dream that her husband chased has been shattered. And she tells herself it's time to come home. That dream of 2.5 kids and a white picket fits and a social security plan, she knows that none of that's come to fruition. It's time to come home. 
She doesn't have to build her life up on social media to make it look more perfect than it is and to make her husband look more perfect than he is and to make her family look more perfect than they are. Everything's been shattered. Everyone knows it. She's in this low place of humility where God can really use her, but she knows that it's time to come home. And I'm gonna close out right now, but here is the irony of this reality that so many of us, we didn't come from Moab, but our stories aren't that much different. And yet instead of coming home, Instead of coming home, what do we do? We just stay in our junk. We just stay in Moab. Maybe it's comfortable or easy, or maybe you don't see a way out and you're scared, and, and the idea of sinning is more comfortable, even though you know it's wrong, than this other piece of your heart where you know you need to give that to the Lord. You know you need to take that social risk. Maybe your heart is hard and you just want to sin, but God is saying to his people this morning, he's saying specifically to the women at New Life, it is time to come home. And it is time to invest in someone who isn't home yet. That every disciple, man and woman, is a disciple maker. I have this one closing thought. I heard someone else say it, and it's so It's so simple. In fact, a few of these thoughts, I've heard people say them, and they're all very simple, but sometimes simple things are just hard to apply. Amen? This guy said this. He said, bad has to stop. Bad has to end so that good can start. Bad has to end before good can start. And so I just want to challenge you with that as we close today. What in your life do you need to surrender so that you can start that journey home? What in your life in this moment, in this time, right now, where God's working on your heart, before you leave, before you get distracted by lunch, before you get distracted with being back in a very comfortable and cozy environment in Aberdeen, South Dakota, where God's using this moment right now to speak to your heart, what in your moment do you need to surrender to him because bad has to stop? That, that's the gospel. Gospel isn't come to me perfect, it's come to me a sinner, but I don't want you to stay that way and I'm gonna change your heart and I'm gonna change your life, but you need to be first at this point of surrender in your life for things to change because bad has to stop in the sense that it's not that you don't ever mess up again, but in the sense that you have to surrender these things to me and if you do, I'm gonna bless you. There's story after story. There's this wall that's being formed outside of the sanctuary and we're going to hear your stories in the coming weeks and you're gonna send them to to us and then we're gonna take someone with better handwriting than you and we're gonna put some of your stories on this wall. And the stories are coming out of youth ministry and college ministry and young adult ministry and seniors ministry. They're coming from all demographics and in each service that we have at New Life, stories of life change where people are surrendering and they're leaving this place called Moab and they're coming back to the people of God and their life is changing and God is honoring, honoring their decision to serve him no matter what. But we are delusional in our thinking if we think that we can keep going the same direction in the same train tracks and the same you know, train coming right at us and think that anything real is gonna change in our life. God has already taken a step towards you and engaged you. The next step is that you surrender to him and the bad has to stop in order for the good to take over. That's just how it works. Does your story look like Ruth? Does it look like Naomi? Or does it look like a half-hearted Orpah who says thanks but no thanks?
good news of the gospel is that now, a period of time later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Christ comes onto the scene. And he is the ultimate good. He goes to a cross. He dies in your place. He rises from death so that you can have life. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He dies in our place for all of our bad. He initiates the good, and he is engaging in a relationship with you right now. But the call to your life, man or woman, look at me, is surrender, and nothing's gonna change until you make that step towards him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. I thank you specifically for the Ruths that you've put in our church. And it, and it seems like there's, there's, more, there's more people, more women that'll probably need someone to invest in them as they, they start inquiring about the process today than there might be of people who feel equipped to invest in other women. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would raise up these mentor relationships in our church that would be a catalyst for change. Naomi had all sorts of problems, but at the end of the day, she mentored Ruth. And she didn't use her imperfections or her faults as an excuse not to be obedient to that call of mentorship on her daughter-in-law's life. I pray that you would create a stronger culture of mentorship and discipleship at our church. That what we see happening with the women at New Life would just be the tip of the iceberg. I pray that you get all the glory. I pray that the community would be transformed through this call to worship you and to serve you and to have this mentality, if I die, I die because you are everything. I pray that you would do work and I pray this, Jesus, in your name and everybody said, amen.